Let's just take a moment and pray before we listen to God's Word again. Heavenly Father, we thank you again for those words that we have been privileged to sing and privileged to know that they are true because of what you've done for us through our Savior, Jesus Christ, that he is the Christ, the saving one. And Lord, we we ask now that as we come to your word, that you will open up our eyes to behold Christ, the saving one, that he will become the saving one for us today as we see him and know him and, and move to trust him. Lord, I thank you for the privilege it is to, to study your word, and I think of all the things that I've learned uh, this week. And Lord, I pray especially that, that you will use me to make what you have said and done clear for us this morning so that we can hear and respond. I pray that my own frailties will not get in the way, but that, uh, that the Christ, the saving one, will be on full display as we hear your word now. We ask this in his name. Amen. I have to confess, I have never really been a particular fan of Western films. Uh, I don't dislike them. There are a handful that I've really enjoyed, but on the whole, I've never really got whatever it is about those classic Western films that people who really love them uh, know and get. I've spent the week wrestling with a way to say something coherent about a really long stretch of the book of Exodus that we're going to be in this morning. We're going to be dealing with Exodus chapters 7 uh, up through into 13 today. It's the narrative account of the plagues that God sends through Moses on Egypt and Pharaoh, and then also the account of the Passover, the final judgment of the Lord on Egypt, and the way that he, he finally brings his people out of bondage uh, with a mighty hand And as I've been wrestling with what to highlight in this big picture, kind of fly-by view of this incredible story and this unique and important event in Israel's history, I think I may have gotten a little bit closer to what it is that makes Westerns work, uh, for lack of a better term. You know, you've got this wild and chaotic setting out on the frontier where the long arm of the law is not powerful to reach and save, where your average citizen has almost no protection from the power of evil men. There's lawlessness, there's chaos, and the strongest and the most ruthless ones rise, at, rise to power. And for those lucky enough, unlucky enough to be caught there, there's little hope that things are going to improve. And even though our situation today might not appear to have that much in common with the wild and lawless West that we see in the movies, there is something about it that speaks to us still, that we can feel. You know, the situation is, there is a disconnect between what is right and what is real. And things are not right. There is a rightness that should be there, and it's missing. And in a Western movie, usually that rightness would be expressed as the law. You know, the law is not there. The order is not there. And there is a deadly absence of what is right. Until that is... The lone marshal rides into town, and that marshal is a representative of a greater power that has been conspicuously absent until now. He has come to bring the law. He has come to set things right. Of course, no one thinks he can do it. No one in his right mind would stand up to the leader of the local gang, and the task seems impossible. But when we watch our Western, we're not really worried that it's not going to work out, are we? 
And the reason we're not worried is because we've probably seen this story before. It's all so predictable. We know how the plot progresses. We know what's going to happen. And even though it seems impossible that the good guy would win at the beginning of the story, nothing makes more sense at the end than the good guys come out at top, the bad guys get what's coming to them, and law and order gets restored. I think that my main complaint before about Western movies was how predictable they are. You know, my favorite ones tend to be the newer ones that take the expected formula and turn it upside down and, and shock you. I'm only starting now to realize that the predictability of the story might be one of the strengths in the story. Knowing where the story goes helps us to make sense out of the stuff in the middle, out of the journey on the way there. And this is true for us as we read the events in Exodus, knowing how the story is going to end. And knowing how the story is going to end, and knowing that Christ has purchased for us freedom from slavery helps us to find our way in the middle of the story. Because the hard part of the story in the middle is where we live our lives. It's where everything seems hardest. As a disclaimer, like the book of Exodus is not a Western. Uh, That's not how it progresses. But I'm starting to think it would make a good one if it was adapted. But what the story of the plagues has in common with the Western is just how predictable it is. It's so predictable, in fact, that if you look with me at the beginning of chapter 7 right now, this will be on page 49 if you're using the black Bibles underneath the chairs in front of you, or uh, you know, Exodus is the second book of the Bible. You'll flip through uh, Genesis till you get to Exodus. In the beginning of chapter 7, God will tell Moses every single thing he's about to do over the next six chapters in advance. It's all right there. He, he lays it out for us. We know what to expect. So with a mild spoiler alert, let's read the first 13 verses of Exodus chapter 7 together. And the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out my people of Israel from among them. Moses and Aaron did so. They did just as the Lord commanded them. Now Moses was 80 years old and Aaron 83 years old when they spoke to Pharaoh. Then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, When Pharaoh says to you, Prove yourselves by working a miracle, you shall say to Aaron, Take your staff and cast it down before Pharaoh, that it may become a serpent. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron cast down his staff before Pharaoh and his servants, and it became a serpent. Then Pharaoh summoned the wise men and the sorcerers, and they, the magicians of Egypt, also did the same by their secret arts. For each man cast down his staff, And they became serpents. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Still Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Let's just take some point form notes on what program God has just laid out for Moses. Here's what we can expect. Verse 2, God is going to speak through Moses and Aaron, and he's going to tell Pharaoh 
let my people go. Verse 3, Pharaoh's heart will be hardened. Pharaoh will not listen. God will do many signs and wonders in Egypt. Pharaoh will still not listen. The Lord knows this already. Verse 4, after these signs and wonders and after Pharaoh refuses to listen, then the Lord will bring his people out through great acts of judgment. Verse 5, the Egyptians will know that Yahweh is Lord. Verse 6, Moses and Aaron will do all that the Lord has commanded them. If we turn from there and we look at what happens next, the next paragraph, verses 8 to 13 that we read, uh, where Aaron throws down his staff and it becomes a serpent, this is the little mini-scuffle before the big showdown that's coming. If we go back to the Western motif, this would be the part where the new sheriff whips out his gun and blasts the gun right out of the goon's hand who was going to shoot him from behind. And then he just calmly holsters his six-shooter, tips his hat to the big bad guy boss and says, see you around. Turns and walks calmly out of the saloon. Right? The real fight is going to come later. That wasn't the real fight. It was just a little dust off early on. But we learned something really important about the new lawman in that dust off. Fella can shoot. You know, there's... There's someone in town now who has the ability to stand up. This little scene is a miniature warning to Pharaoh about what's about to happen in Egypt. Look at the way we, the, those elements we listed from verses 1 to 7 all appear here. Moses and Aaron act obediently on behalf of the Lord. Pharaoh gets a warning sign. There's a miracle performed by the Lord. Even though there's a miracle, Pharaoh finds a reason to harden his heart and not believe. And look at the last words. All of this as the Lord had said. The Lord of Israel already knows how the whole thing is going to go down. Even Pharaoh's stubbornness is a part of his plan. Which begs the question, why are there ten plagues? What are the first nine even doing there? God could snap his fingers and bring his people out of slavery. Why not just fast forward to the death of the son and the, the firstborn and the Passover and the tenth plague and get everyone out of there? If you just humor me and let me kind of imagine one more Western scene in the book of Exodus in this story. And this goes back to chapter 5. This would be the part where Moses, the new sheriff, I mean really we know he's just a deputy, uh, of the Lord, but you know, Moses rides into town and he arranges a face-to-face meeting with big bad leader Pharaoh. Moses tells Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, let my people go. In other words, there is a new sheriff in town and you are going to start keeping the law. And Pharaoh tells Moses, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and I will not let them go. In other words, take a look around, Sheriff. I own this town. I'm the law here. I'm not going to do what you say. At this point, Pharaoh, instead of releasing the slaves, he increases the amount of work they have to do, and they become even more miserable, and Moses and the Hebrews are greatly discouraged. This is where a really important reality sets in. Moses and the Israelite people have no power to rescue themselves from slavery in Egypt. Absolutely no power. Pharaoh and Egypt are a mismatch for them. They are too strong. 
And thankfully, as we heard last week, that's what Yahweh promises to do in chapter 6. The Lord says, I will come and I will rescue. Because unless the Lord shows up and faces down Pharaoh on Israel's behalf, there is no hope in this situation. So we need to keep in mind there's two different kind of mismatches here. There's a mismatch between Pharaoh and the people of Israel. In the same way you and I cannot rescue ourselves from sin, the people of Israel could not rescue themselves from slavery. We need to remember it's when we feel most overwhelmed and outgunned that God steps in and battles on our behalf. And there's a second mismatch. The second mismatch is between God and Pharaoh. Uh, it's it's going to be laughable. You know, it's very quickly... The, the pharaohs and the Egypts of the world find out just how far the tables have turned when God shows up and begins to pass judgment on them. I'm about to read pretty much a whirlwind version of the first nine plagues. Uh, it's a story that hopefully we know well. We're, we don't have time to read uh, every word of the passage, regrettably, but I'm going to read as much as I can, and I'm going to skip through beginning uh, halfway through chapter 7, uh, just kind of do a, a really quick version to hopefully give us enough of a sense of what God does here that we can talk about it uh, based out of the text. And, and as I read, you can follow if you want. We'll start in 7 verse 14, but just beware, I'm going I'm sk- to skip over certain parts. As I read, I want you to ask the question, what is God doing in these plagues? Why do we have 10 plagues instead of just one? What's God accomplishing here in his plan? So the first sign. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning, and you shall say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, sent me to you, saying, Let my people go. But so far you have not obeyed. Thus says the Lord, By this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, with the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water that is in the Nile, and it shall turn into blood. Moses and Aaron did as the Lord commanded. There was blood throughout all the land of Egypt. But the magicians of Pharaoh did the same by their secret arts. So Pharaoh's heart remained hardened, so he would not listen to them, as the Lord had said. The second sign. Thus says the Lord, let my people go. But if you refuse to let them go, behold, I will plague all your country with frogs. The Nile shall swarm with frogs. They'll come up into your house and into your bedroom and onto your bed and into your houses and your servants' houses. So Aaron stretched out his hand over the waters of Egypt and the frogs came up and covered the land of Egypt. But the magicians did the same thing by their secret arts and made frogs come up on the land of Egypt. This time Pharaoh actually calls Moses and Aaron to him and says, I need your help to get rid of the frogs. It's interesting that the magicians can copy the problem, they can make the problem worse, but they can't make the plague go away. So Moses even tells Pharaoh, you choose the day. You pick a day, and that's the day the Lord will get rid of the frogs for you. We read, And the Lord did according to the word of Moses. The frogs died out, but when Pharaoh saw that there was a respite, he hardened his heart and would not listen to them, as the Lord had said. The third side was the plague of gnats, and this time we get an update on how the magicians are doing. We read, The magicians tried by their secret arts to produce gnats, but they could not. And the magicians said to Pharaoh, This is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart was hardened. He would not listen to them 
as the Lord had said. The Lord sent a fourth warning sign, swarms of flies, and this time he added a stipulation. We're in chapter 8, verse 22. But on that day I will set apart the land of Goshen where my people dwell, so that no swarms of flies shall be there, that you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. Thus I will put a division between my people and your people. This time around, Pharaoh engages in a little bit of bartering. He, he considers letting the Hebrews go, but not very far, uh, if Moses will just remove the flies. So Moses removed remove the flies, and you guessed it, chapter 8, verse 32, but Pharaoh hardened his heart this time also and did not let the people go. Fifth sign, thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, if you refuse to let my people go and still hold them, behold, the hand of the Lord will fall with a very severe plague upon your livestock that are in the field. But the Lord will make a distinction between the livestock of Israel and the livestock of Egypt. And the Lord set a time saying, tomorrow the Lord will do this thing in the land. And when it happened, Pharaoh sent, and behold, not one of the livestock of Israel was dead, but the heart of Pharaoh was hardened, and he did not let the people go. The sixth sign was a breakout of boils on the skin. We get an update on the magicians again. We read, the magicians could not stand before Moses because of the boils. For the boils came upon the magicians and all the Egyptians. But the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, and he did not listen to them as the Lord had spoken to Moses. Now the final three, the seven, eighth, and ninth signs and wonders that we read about are big ones. And we get some important explanations here about what God is doing. Right before the seventh plague, this is what the Lord says to Pharaoh. We're in chapter 9, verse 14. For this time I will send all my plagues on you yourself and on your servants and on your people so that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. Then God points out what should be obvious by this point. For by now I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence and you would have been cut off the earth. God could wipe them out like that. This should be obvious by this point. But for this purpose I have raised you up to show you my power that in my name that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. Behold, about this time tomorrow I will cause very heavy hail to fall such as never been seen in Egypt before. From the day it was founded until now. Now therefore send, get your livestock in from the field into safe shelter. For every man and beast that is in the field and not brought in will die when the hail falls. And whoever feared the word of the Lord among the servants of Pharaoh hurried his slaves and his livestock into the houses. But whoever did not pay attention to the word of the Lord left his slaves and his livestock in the field. This time Pharaoh actually calls Moses and Aaron to him and says, if you can believe this, this time I have sinned. This time I have sinned. The Lord is right, and I and my people are in the wrong. Plead with the Lord for me. I will let you go, and you shall stay no longer. And Moses pleads, and the hail stops. And then chapter 9, verse 34, But when Pharaoh saw that the rain and the hail and the thunder had ceased, he sinned yet again and hardened his heart, he and his servants, so the heart of Pharaoh was hardened, and he did not let the people of Israel go, just as the Lord had spoken through Moses. And in chapter 10, before the eighth sign, we get another important statement from the Lord about what he's doing here. 
Then the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart, that I may show these signs of mine among them, and that you may tell in the hearing of your son and of your grandson how I have dealt harshly with the Egyptians and what signs I have done among them, that you may know that I am the Lord. Pharaoh was warned if he does not let the people go, this time it will be a plague of locusts that have such as never been seen in the land that will devour everything. And it, it, Pharaoh's advisors snap at this point, and they tell him, why don't you just let him go? Can't you tell Egypt is ruined by now? So Pharaoh calls them in, and he tries to bargain one last time. He says, forgive my sin, please, only this once, and plead with the Lord your God. And the Lord removes the locusts, and at the end of the hail, we read yet again, or, or sorry, at the end of the hail, the previous plague, we read that yet again Pharaoh hardened his heart. This time, after the locusts, we read, but the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the people go. And then finally, the ninth sign, the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand toward heaven that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, a darkness to be felt. So Moses stretched out his hand toward heaven and there was pitch darkness in all the land of Egypt for three days, but all the people of Israel had light where they lived. And Pharaoh tries another round of bargaining with Moses and Moses tells him, not good enough. And so we read, the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart that he would not let them go and Pharaoh said to him, Get away from me. Take care to never see my face again. For on the day you see my face, you shall die. And Moses said, As you say, I will not see your face again. And as we know, before that conversation ended, Moses delivered to Pharaoh one final warning about what was to come. But for now, we're going to stop here and we're going to pause to consider because the signs and wonders that God would do in Egypt have passed and all that remains is the final plague that is judgment. The question we posed at the beginning of that long reading uh, of that account of the plagues was why are these even here? Since God knows so very clearly already that Pharaoh's heart will be hard and Pharaoh will not let them go, what does the Lord accomplish in the first nine plagues? I should probably mention there are more legitimate answers to this question than I will have time to, uh, to unpack right now, but let's mention some important ones. If you're listening carefully, the reason that the Lord continually gives, he gives an explanation many times. And it sounds like this. By this, you shall know that I am the Lord. You will know that I am God. God makes it clear he desires that his own people, the people of Israel, will learn from this, that he is the Lord. And God's intention is not just that Israel will, but that Pharaoh will know that God is the Lord. Pharaoh very dangerously said back in chapter 5, who is the Lord? I don't know him. Well, he's going to know him through these nine plagues. God's intention is that Israel and Egypt and Pharaoh and the whole world will know that he and he alone is God in the midst of the earth. The Egyptians worshipped uh, an entire lineup of idols and superstitious gods. They worshipped gods connected with the Nile River, because the Nile was a reliable source of what they needed for life. It irrigated their lands. They, they, they needed it. Um, they worshipped the sun, which was really common. And they literally worshipped just about everything in between. If you do some research, it's fascinating to look into the ways that each one of the signs the Lord performs in Egypt would have been an embarrassment and it would have exposed as false so many of the gods that the Egyptians worshipped. 
Within the text that we have itself, Pharaoh pretty much becomes the stand-in for these gods of Egypt. Uh, Pharaoh was treated as, as essentially divine in Egypt. He was kind of operated between the gods and the people to get them the things that they needed. And what God does repeatedly is expose Pharaoh and those gods as powerless next to him. He proves that he alone is the God over all creation. People, even God's people, even God's people today are continually tempted to put our faith and our trust in parts of God's creation instead of God himself who gave those gifts and who made creation. You think of the Nile River. The first plague was against the Nile. Hebrews and Egyptians alike needed that source of water to live. So there's a reason why we come to worship and put our trust in parts of the creation. But God has to correct that perspective. The water and the sun and all of creation was a good gift from God, but sometimes God just needs to demonstrate there's a difference between the creator and the creation. There's another reason why God chooses to embarrass Pharaoh in this way. God almost uncreates creation. He, he turns creation upside down. Animals are harming people instead of people ruling over animals. There's darkness instead of light. The Nile turns to blood. One of the reasons why God, the God of creation sort of undoes creation in judgment, is because Pharaoh deserved it. He deserved it. If you think back to the beginning of the book of Exodus, think about what Pharaoh's sins against God's people were. He opposed their numerical growth. He opposed their flourishing. In chapter 1, verse 10, we read his words, Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. We don't want them to multiply. So he enslaved them. He treated them harshly. He eventually commanded that every Hebrew boy child be thrown into the Nile River and murdered. The same Nile that God would later turn to blood. In Genesis chapter 1, what was God's original blessing and commandment to humanity when he created them? Be fruitful and multiply. Later on in the book of Genesis, when God calls Abraham and says that through Abraham's descendants, because of Abraham's faith, he will provide one who will bless the whole world and who will undo this tangled mess of sin, what were some of God's promises to Abraham? Many descendants. To be a, a mighty nation. By attempting to enslave and stifle Abraham's descendants, Pharaoh's sins are directly opposed to God's good intentions for the world. God's good intentions when he created the world, God's good intentions when he called Abraham to follow him. Pharaoh has put himself directly opposed to the good things God wants to do in this world. Part of the good news of the Exodus is the message that God will stand against those who oppose his good purposes in creation. The lawman is coming into the chaotic and twisted landscape of this fallen world and he will bring judgment and he will restore order. He will set things right, even if this means taking away some of his good gifts in the process. So when sin and evil oppose God's plan, God will bring his justice and judgment upon that sin. And all sin, this puts in perspective for us the way all sin at its heart is an opposition to what God would do for good. All sin is declaring rebellion 
against the God of creation, which begs the question, how will any sinner stand when God visits his creation in judgment? How will God's people, the Hebrews, who are not perfect and who have sinned, stand when God arrives in Egypt in judgment? And that question gets at least a partial answer in the way the tenth and final plague visits Egypt. God announces through Moses that he himself is going to visit the nation in judgment and that the firstborn son of every household will die. That's the tenth and final plague. But God also provides a way of escape from this judgment. This is the institution of the Passover. Each Hebrew, each Hebrew family is to take a lamb and to slaughter it. They are to roast it whole and eat it together in one night, all in a very specific way. And most importantly, they are to take some of the lamb's blood and apply it to the doorframe around their home. And when God visited Egypt in judgment that night, the firstborn son in every house was found dead. But the Lord saw the blood on the houses of his people, and he passed over those houses, and those in those houses were safe. The way God's people stand before the judgment of a righteous God is not through any righteousness of their own, but by standing under the blood of a substitute. Death visited every home in Egypt that night. In the homes of the Hebrews, the one that died was a lamb instead of the son. This was how God brought his people out of slavery. Before this moment, they were slaves. And after this moment, just as he predicted, they were free. Pharaoh was broken and defeated at the loss of his own son. He could not wait to get them out of his country. They were practically chased out of Egypt. And God would build this annual way of remembering the price of their redemption into the fabric of the nation. They would repeat this meal every year and they would remember, they would look at their firstborn sons in their families and they would remember the lamb that died instead. And they would know beyond a shadow of a doubt, we belong to the Lord. We have been bought with a price. The Lord has chosen to redeem us from slavery and he has called this whole nation his son. And we can think on that today and realize it takes on deeper and deeper meaning in what it means for God to rescue his people because he'll rescue us from a far greater slavery when he would send his only begotten son into the world to suffer and die in our place. And built into who we are today as God's people, we remember, we remember regularly just as we were told to that on the night when Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and broke it and said, this is my body, take, eat. And giving it to his people, so he also took a cup and giving it to his people, he said, this, this is my blood poured out for the forgiveness of sins. When Jesus did that during a Passover meal, he wasn't just teaching that his sacrifice was a little bit like the institution of the Passover. He was revealing that Passover had always been a little bit like the sacrifice that Jesus was going to make. 
God revealed in Christ the true rescue for sinners. He was revealing that Passover has always been like the sacrifice that he would make for us on the cross. Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. In the same way that death visited every single household on that night in Egypt, the justice of God decrees that eternal death is the wages for sin, and in his mercy, God provides a substitute. God's people do not stand before his wrath because of any righteousness they have in themselves. They stand under the blood of a substitute. Sometimes God needs to teach us things. He, sometimes he needs to teach us that the things that we trust and the things that we fear cannot possibly save us. They are not him. Sometimes God needs to demonstrate that for us by taking away the things, that the good things that he has given to us in creation, or by exposing the things that we're afraid of for what they truly are, and help us to see that only he is the Savior. Sometimes God needs to do that in ways that are highly disruptive to our lives, and yet for our own good. And sometimes he must do that again and again, two times, or five times, or ten times. But the truth is, is that our sin is nothing less than choosing sides against the one who would do good. Against the one who created everything, including us. And there comes a point, we don't know when, when we will be called before the throne to give an answer, or when God himself will visit this world in judgment. And when the penalty for standing against him literally means there will be hell to pay. And there comes a point when God makes an offer. His offer is that he will pay for the death and the hell that we deserve with the blood of his perfect son. And instead of death, he will give us life. Life that lasts forever. Instead of our failures, he will teach us to live as his children in his kingdom. He'll offer to to give us that, and that offer must be taken hold of in faith. In Egypt, they had to slaughter the lamb. They had to apply the blood. They had to stand under the blood. You either stand under the blood of the lamb, or you stand under his wrath. We, we don't get to know how many times we'll resist that offer until our heart becomes hardened as Pharaoh's was, to the point where we will never accept that offer and we will reject it. We don't get to know how many times, one more time, we deny and we're hardened. Our, our choices have consequences. God has given us that privilege and that gift and that responsibility. And our consequences develop our character. And eventually God will pass judgment on the choices we have made. Are you under the blood of Christ? Will you confess your sins and turn from them to God and receive his gracious gift of eternal life? If you're here today and you are under the blood of Christ, then I want to bring us back to something that we said at the beginning of our time this morning. And that's this, that knowing where you are in a predictable story and knowing the end of that story helps us find our place in the middle in our lives, in the hard parts. Knowing 
that Christ, our Passover lamb, has already been sacrificed. Knowing that our freedom from bondage to sin has already taken place. And knowing that our names are already written in the book of life. And knowing that we are people who have been redeemed and purchased at a price. And knowing that one day, the pharaohs and the Egypts and the Babylons of this world will will experience judgment and will be exposed for what they are. Knowing these things should shape the way we live. They should shape the things that we talk about. They should inform the things we teach each other and especially the things we teach our children. And they should filter the way we understand what goes on in the world around us. We find ourselves waiting in this world for the arrival of Jesus who will judge all things and who will set things right. But while we wait, we have the privilege of looking back and remembering the victory that Christ has already won. And while we wait, we do that as people who already enjoy freedom from slavery to sin, the freedom that Christ has purchased on our behalf. I'm just going to close with with rereading some words of praise to God from Revelation that we've already heard today. Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your holy name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we we think of what you accomplished in Egypt, and we know from your word that judgments like that will come again in a final way when you judge all things in this world. And we thank you that you have provided a way of escape that you have provided a way to be rescued for any who will turn to you and be rescued by the blood of your Lamb, Jesus Christ. Father, we think of your intentions in those plagues and your intentions was that your name would be known, that your people would know who you are and that the world would know who you are. And that is our request, that's that what you would do in our lives in this coming week that you would expose for us the places where we trust in things that are not you, that you would give us, in your mercy, the ability to know that you and you alone are Lord and God. And we pray that as we, as we adjust our lives to line up with the truth of who you are and who Jesus is, that then the world around us would see and know. They would see what you have done in our lives, what you have rescued us from, that we would sing that song in front of everyone that we meet, that we would tell them we have a great Savior who has set us free, and then they will know that you alone are God in the midst of the earth. We thank you for your mercy that's revealed in your judgment, that you take your time, that as many as possible would come to know you and call out to you to be saved. And we give you praise and glory for the price that you have paid for us, even though we have sinned against you. Thank you for the good intentions you have for the world. And thank you that those intentions will not be 
waylaid or stopped. Not by our failures, not by our actions. But Lord, they are, your perfect intentions are perfectly worked out through the power that Jesus displayed on the cross. We thank you in his name. Amen. May the Lord's strong hand be mighty to show you that he is the Lord and that he saves you this week. Go in peace.